Product Camp Columbus is a monthly event to discuss all things product. Product experts discuss their methodologies, insights, and experiences in building great products. Product Camp Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies, and Rev1 Ventures. Visit productcampcolumbus.com for info on upcoming events. Now, onto this month's event podcast. So this is Product Camp, um, which we, we Product Camp is a is a national thing, and typically it is a one day unconference that happens. So I sort of took it and then and then bastardized it and said, well, why would we just do a one day conference about product and getting product people together? Or why wouldn't we do something monthly and then do a one day thing, you know, once a year? So. Um, we get together monthly to talk about product. Um, how do you vet ideas? How do you how do you manage teams? Um, how do you ultimately get to a, a really great product? So I need to thank Rev One when we, we decided that, that this made sense to do. I went to Rev One and said, "Hey, I do something else here called Startup Grind. Some of you have seen there, and, and some of you are aware of that." But I went to the Rev One team and said, "Hey, I'd like to do this." Can we do it at your place? They said yes. Um, so thanks to the to the Rev One team for letting us um, do it here and, and hang out. Content via Ryan's here. Ryan, Darren from Content via is helping us out with the audio, and and so they've been helping us promote it and and to figure out what we want to do with this. Kita is doing the video. Kita does video for lots of people and for startup grind as well. So if you need video, talk to, to Kita. Kita, you can like raise your hand so people know where you are. Okay. Um, and my firm, AWH, we're a software development firm. We build digital products for, for clients across the spectrum of product type and, and um, company and client size. So without further ado, Joel Crockett, VP of Development from Crosschecks, is here to talk about how he thinks about product and how Crosschecks approaches product. Please help me welcome Joel. Should be on, should be good All to right. go. Great. Well, great to be here. Thanks, everybody. I'm surprised there's so many people here. This is great. Um, it's, all, it's all to about listen you. to me. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, they want to come and see the cross chucks. Yeah, ex- cross chucks. These right. are the cross chucks, the blue shoes we all wear. So that's uh, our calling card. Is it mandatory? It's not mandatory. Everybody gets a pair when they get a job in the cross chucks. Um, but is it it's fr- mandatory for salespeople? Is it? So our guys walk in with suits and ties and blue chucks. So if you um, showed up with like shoes that look like this, at, would- the, at the office, you're good. But if our CEO catches you talking to a customer without them, it's, it's not good. Yeah, Sean, uh, Sean could... Sean's tough. He's a military yeah, guy. Yeah, Sean could mean mug you, pretty, you know, <laughs> yeah, in a pretty yeah, vicious could. way, too, I think. So I've got some questions for, for Joel. In fact, I have you know, like two pages of questions. But let's make this interactive. Um, we want you to get as much value out of it as, as possible. So if you um, have a question, raise your hand. We'll, we'll just we'll get to them as long as you're asking smart questions. If you start asking dumb questions, then I'm probably just going to ask my questions. Um, so make sure they're smart questions and they're good questions. But Darren will get the, the mic. He's got the mic over there. If you have a question, raise your hand. He'll get you the mic, and then we'll um, talk about it. So I'm gonna, I'll kick things off. When you hear product development, what does that sort of instinctually mean for you, and what do you in, in immediately think about? 
Um, you know, I think product development, I think at, at great technology companies, they really put product development at the heart of the company. So product really drives a lot of the decisions that are being made, uh, both in, you know, you're influencing marketing, you're influencing sales, obviously the engineering team. So when I think about product development, it's really about managing the entire spectrum of the product development lifecycle, not only on the engineering and building side, but also on the sales, marketing, and success of the product. So I think, you know, I think one of the misconceptions is on, in product development is that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go help the engineering team build out a product and deliver code, and then somebody else kind of handles it. And I think product development and success doesn't really work that way. You know, like we have product owners at CrossChecks that really own that whole life cycle. So if you own a product, you literally own the success of that product for CrossChecks, whether it's revenue um, or, you know, user adoption. We're just trying to, it's, if, it, if it's a distribution play, it's number of new users. If it, or monthly active users, if it's revenue, you're, you are um, judged on your ability to drive revenue with the products you're creating. So there's full ownership in, in that product development side with us. So who's a typical product owner at CrossChecks? Can it be a line of business person, even like a VP of sales? So we hired product owners on our team. So I have four product owners that run various products on the, at CrossChecks. And how many, how many will they own and manage? Generally one. So we've actually limited. We, we, a, a year ago had several additional products, and we really focused our offering. So now it's kind of one product with different feature sets as opposed to our core product, which was a biometric. I mean, we should start there, and I'll tell you guys a little, about, a little bit about what we do, if you don't know, but it um, was a biometric scanner that we distributed for free. So a patient would walk into a hospital, scan their fingerprint. If they didn't have their biometric on file with that hospital, it would create a new biometric profile for them and then link it to their EHR. And next time the patient comes in, they scan their fingerprint, and they're checked into the hospital, and it confirms their identity to limit fraud and other things. But as, and so and the idea was to build additional apps on top of that product. And we've kind of gone away from that model. Currently, we'll go back in that direction. But So we had three or four products. We've, we've combined them into one product to kind of simplify the offering. And those product owners are all sort of t- have taken different pieces of that product offering. So that's a long answer. Maybe too complicated. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, really, what I tell our, our product owners is you guys are the CEOs of the product. So you guys manage literally the success of the product. So whatever assets you need, you've got to define what those assets are. You need to argue and get, get me data and analytics on, you know, why do you need more resources to accomplish this thing? What are users saying that you think you need to take the resources that you need to build this next thing that you want to build? So, yeah, that's kind of how it, how it runs. How do you then structure your project, your, your project and product teams? Are people dedicated to, to products, or do people move in and out of, of working on different products? So currently, just the, where we are, they're dedicated to a product, right? But traditional development teams or, or product managers or product owners will kind of switch around to different products. We're just not in that position right now to do that. We've structured the engineering teams based on sort of their, their expertise to be more fluid. So depending on what the new feature set is in a certain, a certain product, the engineering teams can kind of shift around depending on what expertise you need to do that. But the product owner really owns that product for a long period of time. So I'm going to jump around because, you know, I, I you know, you know, have some disorder that doesn't allow me to focus on one train of thought for a while. Why, given all of the content out there around products and, and how to approach products and all the systems and methodologies and processes and tools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, why do bad products still get built in your mind? Man, you know, I just think it's really hard to build good products. You know, I think especially as, as you involve, like, humans in the process, so there's a lot of getting people behind an idea and getting people to stay focused on that, that idea and not stray from it and respond appropriately to 
conditions as they change. So you have all these factors on product development teams that are really they're difficult. I mean, you got you got you know budget realities. You have time cycles you've got to hit. So you're making compromises all the time. So you might have this perfect vision originally, but I mean, you got to start cutting features. You've got to deliver it faster. As you make compromises and as you try to prioritize things, I mean, that's where things go off the off the rails. So it's hard. I mean, again, it's a difficult process to manage a lot of people to accomplish one very coherent, cohesive product. It's diff more difficult than, <laughs> than you think. Yeah, and along that line, we were just chatting before we started, and, and like 30 seconds came to the conclusion that it's the, it's the human element and the human component mm -hmm. that, that is more complicated than the technical or design or the actual sort of manifestation of, of, of talent and skill. Managing the people in the context of trying to create and manage a product is really the, is really the challenge. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think managing managing people is the biggest challenge. Um, and I think in the building, you know, I, when I showed up at Crosschecks, there were 10 engineers. I think there were 30 employees total. And within four months, we had 110 employees. So it was like taking a team. I was the first product person at Crosschecks. So, you know, I kind of like, really wasn't a lot of agile methodology going on in any kind of disciplined way. And it was sort of the engineers running things and Sean, the CEO, just saying, like, do this to you know, each individual engineer. And as we grew, um, trying to create those, put those structures in place as you get more people on board while preserving culture and, and delivering on time and all those things and just spinning people up. I and mean, when you add, when you double the size of your engineering team, and you, got, you have new people that aren't familiar with the technology stack and kind of with what needs to, needs to happen, it slows everybody down, right? So like the, getting people onboarded, keeping them really aware of what's happening in the company, is, it's just tough. It's a re really difficult challenge, I think. So how, how have you addressed it and presumably at least been mo at least moderately successful at managing the, the people as you, you are adding people at that pace? Right. I think one of the things, you know, the last... Uh, couple, probably three months, we've made a, a significant effort to be way more transparent across checks, right? So I think as you grow, you know, people can kind of be left out of the inner circle of decisions being made or kind of what's going on. And people get pretty, they see things happening. They don't know why they're happening. And then people kind of start to grumble and, and you, you kind of feel, you can feel it in the building. It's really interesting. Well, people people will, will, with lack of information, people yes. will fill the void themselves. Exactly. Right. So we made a conscious decision. I don't know. How many of you guys have used Slack before? You know, Slack at your kind of like Slack's incredible, right? What we did with Slack is we just made all information available to everybody, right? So any sales meeting notes that like somebody meets with sales and they put the notes in Salesforce, it goes to Slack, right? So any our like our product owner notes, we talk to a customer, it goes to Slack, and there's just a feed, right? So like everybody in the company sees like this customer is pissed off because we did this, right? Or this customer didn't buy our product because they thought this feature this feature either wasn't there or this feature sucked or whatever. Um, and so it's really changed the culture, right? Because as we make decisions on the product side, everybody in the company is like, oh, I, I, I see why they're doing that. Just on like a day-to-day -day sort of intelligence level, there is more of this collective consciousness in the company. Um, I don't, I don't want to be like a poster child for Slack here, but I, I love Slack. It literally has decreased the number of emails I, sent by, I send by 80% internally. Like internally, it's incredible. But I think the company, and you see the that however you do it, whether it's Slack or, or whatever you, know, you want to use or tools you want to use to do that, you really see people starting to make the right decisions themselves. And we've gone through a great period in the last two to three months where we have really focused the teams and that transparency has been there. And you can just feel it in the building when you walk in. I mean, there's just a totally different energy when people are kind of in that flow of building a great product. They feel like they're building a great product. They feel like they're engaged in the decisions that are being made. They understand the why behind the product. Um, and you'd think that'd be easy. Like, everybody's in the building. Like, how do you not know what we're doing? But it's not. I mean, it's not. It, very quickly, people build clicks, and people aren't talking to each other, and people get busy, and it's just not happening. 
so that's been really powerful for me to watch, right? I think just uh, like, you know, I'm new to the, to the startup game myself. So just kind of watching that life cycle happen, you know, you, re- you listen to, you know, podcasts and you read books and you hear about that kind of thing where culture is so important. And I think I, I had unique experience of, of seeing the culture not be great for a while and then watching it literally just shift the other direction as we made a conscious decision. And really it was looking at feedback we were getting from employees of them saying, like, we don't feel connected to the decisions that are being made. We don't feel connected to each other. We don't feel connected to other divisions. And we made a conscious decision, okay, every week we're going to have town halls. We're going to be very transparent with all of our financials. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to understand who has equity at the company. It's just all transparent. Right? And you really started to feel like everybody owned the product and they understood the decisions being made and they felt a part of it. And it's been really powerful to see. Productivity you know, has gone up considerably as well. So it's been a great transition. So I guess the summary of that is use Slack and change your company culture. Yeah, exactly. In, um, in the process. Slack, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, we use Slack. If you so put this online, yeah, exactly. No. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, okay, it's okay to be a fan of a tool in a company. And it's really the principle behind it, right? You don't need Slack. I mean, it might be emails or having meetings and really just being transparent. It just gets harder and harder as you have more people, right? You have add more people to the company. You can't effectively communicate with everybody all the time. So I think just finding a way to do that is critical. As I think what you find that happens if you try to like sort of centralize control and understanding in the company, you, you can't possibly understand really what's happening on the ground at all times and be able to make the right decision for other people. It's impossible, right? So... Um, and our, you know, our CEO is a military guy, ex-military NSA, and you know, he was part of that movement of taking intelligence in the military and really pushing it out to the edges where you had analysts in the field making decisions, and he's a big believer in just getting, getting information and data to the front lines where those people are seeing the problem real time. They're with the customer. They understand the problem better than anybody, and let them create a, a solution to it. So I think giving our employees enough context to be able to make those kind of micro decisions is super, is really critical. And I often think there's really like a... It's the last 5% difference in a company that makes all the difference, right? So I think a lot of companies put in that 95% of effort, but it's kind of unlocking the last 5% of potential in your employees where they go the extra mile. They're able to unlock their creativity. They love their job. They, they, love the, they understand the mission and vision, and, they, and it, you literally can feel it. And that's why people want to work at startups, right? I mean, that's, that's why we all, you know, we, we go to, really, we, go, we all want to go to work and love our job. But I think, like, this, the entrepreneurial startup experience, like, that's really what you're there for. Like, I train, you know, I trained as a physician. I'm a dermatologist. Got into build, building products as a resident, and uh, but I didn't know that. Could, could you, I got this thing on my back. Yeah, no, we're not doing I'm that. Here, but after, um, it's, it's ninety nine bucks. <laughs> um, but Do yeah, you have, so you have a square reader with you. Yeah, you exactly. My, just pull my phone. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I wanted. I was in healthcare and was all, always been into into technology and how technology could change healthcare, and built started building uh, an application for really for residents to study dermatopathology, so glass slides, right? right? So, like, physicians are still sitting in front of microscopes with glass slides, and they're looking through the, the eyepiece, or it's kind of archaic, and it's, you know, you've got huge rooms full of these slides for the last 20 years. So when the you know, iPad came out, iPhone, I was kind of like, that just needs to be digitized, and it's going to be digitized at some point. So we found a lab in town to fund it, and we, we built a, a study tool for residents. And then during my residency, I then built a platform for physicians to use. Um, and that product still exists and is, is growing as a, kind of as a separate company. But then I had the opportunity to come to Crosschecks. And one of the things that I found trying to build products in healthcare was that, like, there's no platform for doing that, right? So there's all these – essentially, healthcare lives in the age of the internet in 1975, where it was like a bunch of intranets that existed at a, universities and they couldn't talk to each other. So hospitals exist as a bunch of intranets right now. So what we're trying to do at Crosschecks is create one unique ID – that essentially will act as an IP address for every patient in the, in the country. So every customer that we bring on, we take the entire 
what's called their master patient index, which we get all the medical record numbers for every single patient at that facility. We have 50 million of them now. And we link them to a global unique ID for every patient. So as I got into building healthcare apps, I was like, you know, this whole integration is a total, total mess. Like, I built this app. It's awesome. But I can use it at my practice and a few others, but I can't, I, I can't sell it, right? So it became one of those things where you have to build a company around the technology. You can't build a technology for a bunch of companies, if that makes sense. And when I talked to Sean at you know, Crosschecks, I saw immediately, like, they're creating really the Internet for healthcare. And that platform, because once you enable that communication of, like, I know who this patient is at every single hospital in the country, you're able to exchange information about them. So it was really that vision that brought me on board. So as a, you know, as a dermatologist and as a sort of a, uh, somebody in the healthcare world, that's why I jumped into technology, because the sort of the vision and mission, I think that's why, again, people go into, into startups and entrepreneurial sort of endeavors is you want to change the world in a meaningful way, um, and healthcare needs it, so... There's a lot of talk about digress. empathy. No, that was good, good, good background for, for folks to understand. You know your your perspective on things and, and how how it's morphed and evolved over time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about empathy within the the product creation and management space. You know, being uh, empathetic with with users and value and the the context in which they're going to use the product. How do you sort of think about who a good product person is and how they sort of view users and the product and bring it all together to you know drive uh, the creation of a really exceptional product right yeah i think being a product owner is, is one of the more difficult jobs i think it is at a technology company you because ha- you have to be great at a lot of sort of different things so you need to be a great diplomat you need to be able to kind of get people a to believe in what you're doing but also you know i think my, my best product owners kind of everybody hates them a little bit but overall, they like them, right? Like, they're pushing every division to the point where they, people are, are annoyed at you. Like, I, you know, I'm trying to get sales to do this thing for me. I'm trying to get operations to, like, make sure my, my product's being launched on time. But they maintain a good enough relationship with them where that person will continue to work with you and continue to, to, to execute for you. So that's, that's the kind of... The you, want to be, you want to be a likable pain in the ass. Yes. Yeah, yeah my best product owners are exactly that. Yeah. Um, but I often talk about, you know, like, this concept... And I, I'm a physician, so I love like mnemonics when I think through things. But of product owners being like being bold, and I think of like the B O L D for they're believers, right? So they're people that can believe in a vision, and they can create something in their mind, and they love the process of seeing that thing come to life, right? So whatever it is that they believe in, but they, they believe in the vision and mission, and they buy into it, and they have like a you can feel the belief in them. Whatever it is that they they love in life or they believe in in life, that they have that capacity. The O being owners, like they take responsibility for things. Uh, there's a different mentality that people have. When you own something, you treat it differently than something that you borrow or you lease. Like when you come to the company, do they take ownership of the product they've been given? And do they look at it like, I own this thing, I want it to be the best product because I identify myself with this product. It's not like I got handed this thing and I'm just going to hold it for a while and, and give it back at some point. L for learners, right? So people that really go out and learn their product and learn how to make it better. In healthcare, there's a ton of learning to do, right? There's a lot of complexity, a lot of regulation. Do they go out and really proactively learn? And then the the D part of bold is doers, right? So people that just do stuff. Like a lot of times I think in in product, one of the biggest dangers is doing nothing. So if you, it's very easy to get paralyzed by like, I got all this data and and this over here, this person needs this, this user's asking this. Like just making a decision and doing something is often better than nothing because you can at least correct doing something. Right? You kind of can't correct doing nothing. So getting some data back, like I, I'm going to take an action here, I'm going to get data back and see if that was a, a good action or not. And I've seen this in, in kind of product teams where 
you're just sort of going in circles because you're not willing to commit and just, just do something. Um, and I think for me in my own kind of career, the times where I felt successful or where I've had doors open for me is where I just took the leap to just do something that was a little bit outside of the norm. So like as a resident, I went to some guy that I knew had a bunch of money at a lab and said, hey, I want to build this thing. Will you give me 150 grand? And he said, sure, let's do it. Right? So like it was just doing the, who, who are the people that do those things that are a little bit outside of the norm. So if you're a founder and you need some fundraising advice, also go to Joel, apparently. Yeah. Because, no. you know. Go to can, Sean Lane, man. He's, he, he can just he at, 30, 30 convince now. people in a moment's notice to write checks for 150 grand. Yeah. Cool. How do you, so how do you guys figure out what you're going to, we'll focus on the doing piece. How do you, how do you figure out what you're going to work on and, and care about and pay attention to? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's, again, a very, that's a day-to-day challenge. You know, it's, it's always, I think, you know, product sits at the center of a lot of inputs. So we're listening to you know what the sales team saying. What are our customers saying through sales? So sales is always coming at us like, hey, I, you know, we need this feature. Customers are saying, and you can't all, but you can't always listen to sales because sales just wants to sell anything. Like they just want more stuff on the shelf to be able to sell. You're listening to users, right? So we have frequent calls with users, user groups at different hospitals to get their feedback on our products. Um, there's feedback within the app itself, so you can go to the feedback. comment box just like most apps and you can so we're reviewing that feedback we're looking at analytics of how people are using the app itself and then where's most importantly where's the company want to go right i think that's the most important thing you're looking at is that it's very easy to get sidetracked by a short-term win or a short-term sort of like revenue stream that really in the end just diverts you from your bigger mission and vision that's the hardest one i think it's like yeah this is viable we we could make money over here but we're not going to do that because it's not in the long-term interest of the company, especially when you borrowed money from a, a bunch of venture guys and they're wanting to see the return. And you're, you get in that position where you're kind of scrambling just to make money anywhere. And that's where your product starts to, to get really diluted. That's, I think that's the biggest danger. So how do you bridge that gap and how do, you, how do you ensure products and what you're working on and enhancements or extensions to existing products are in alignment with the overall business objectives and outcomes that you're trying to drive to? How often does sort of executive leadership that's setting strategy in a world direction meet with product teams and, and development to bridge that gap? Right. So for and we, we kind of hit a, a point in our company where there's a time, a re, you know, a small company, a startup where the CEO really does just, they just drive everything, right? It's sort of like, I'm going to make a gut decision. And this is what, this is my vision originally. I believe in this thing. and I'm going to go after it. As the company gets bigger, the repercussions of doing that, if you're wrong, are a lot greater, right? Because if you try to stop 35 engineers and say, like, change context, start, and then that didn't work, stop, stop and go back to what you were doing, like, all of that con- context switching has huge implications. Most significantly, they will want to quit. Yes. Right? Yeah. And they will want to go somewhere else. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I was listening to a podcast at one point in time that, like, one of the most demoralizing things you can have somebody do is, like, then they would do this in war camps and different things, like, dig a hole and then fill it back in again. And then go dig another hole and just fill it back in again. It's like a TED Talk or something. I've always remembered that. It's like if you do that with engineers for too long. Joel, that's depressing as hell. They will go crazy. But like that's what you're saying to an engineer, like spend a month building this thing. I just forget that. Go build this next thing. Oh, just, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. And that's easy to do, right? Like if if you're just torn, if you're just pulled left to right, like by, it's very easy to get distracted by all the inputs that you've got. So if you don't have a clear vision or willing to stick to it, it's tough. Like you got to let some time pass to let your assumptions play out and get some data back before you either jump ship or you know make some huge huge decisions so i think for us what we had to do because we saw that happening a lot our company as we grew is we really had to lay out a process we have a team that vets out new ideas 
So the way that that works is we, so we have a, like a, a method for anybody at the company to submit an idea for a new product or a major new feature set. Um, and it's sort of a one-page form that just says, you know, here's my product idea. Well, here's the problem we're trying to solve first. So I'm big on, like, define the problem for me first. And I'm always going to ask you, like, what problem are you solving if you start talking about new features? And what is the, and I don't know if you've heard of this concept of jobs to be done. It's kind of a new, you know, the jobs to be done sort of methodology is essentially saying what job does your user, what job are they trying to get done, right? So like, what are they hiring your product to do for them? I mean, it's an interesting way to think about product. So it starts with... Sort of replacing like user stories? No, for the, the this jobs year, to be done, or is that just a different way to sort of frame it and think about it? It's, yeah, this is like, that, that's a way to think about it kind of a, like as you're thinking of a new product concept, like what is this product, how is this product changing the life of the person that I am? And it seems like a simple thing, but it's easy to lose track of. Like what job is it that they do now, especially in the enterprise, that they're not going to have to do anymore when, they're done, when, when they buy your product. And it, it's funny how often you can think your product's great, but it actually creates more work for the end user in some scenarios, especially healthcare, because you don't take in, into account the context of, in which they're operating. But I'll get back to, our, I'll get back to that. But, so like the process, so we, we have a one-page form for new ideas that anybody in the company can, can submit an idea that's like, what is the problem? What is the solution I'm proposing? Why should cross-checks do this strategically? And why is it the right time in, 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 sort of in the history of the world to do this thing? Why has, you know, what about technology is changing? History of the world. Yes, My history God, of the world. that's a pretty right? high bar. Right. Why is the universe like, what, what is it right now today that makes this the right time for this thing to happen? And, and they can submit that to the, so there's a way to submit that online. And we as a leadership team review those, right? So like, and we give feedback to whoever submitted them, like review them at our weekly meeting. If we think it's something that we should go ahead and investigate, there's a, we have a business development team that'll take so, it, look at it. So how much judging goes on in that process? It's kind of Shark Tank, yeah. Right? We don't have them in the room, but yeah. So they, they then go out and... But you hold it against people. If somebody submits a really terrible idea, yeah, definitely. you're going to hold it against them, right? Yeah. When you see them in the hall, you're going to be like, David, oh, yeah. I mean, he submitted <laughs> that idea that was the worst idea we've ever seen worst in the history of the company. Straight to slack. In the history slack. of the Straight world, Straight to slack maybe. with that one. Everybody sees it. It's terrible. Oh, they all get slacked no, out? No, I'm just kidding. No, they don't. They don't. But uh, they should, maybe they should. Full transparency. So, yeah, we, we take those ideas, and then we, we have, like, a very short defined period of time where our, we have two people that go out and investigate. Like, they do all the analysis and research. Like, what's the market look like? They talk to a certain number of customers. And there's a whole process with that that shouldn't take more than two weeks. So they come back to the executive So is that like team. a business analyst role? Kind of a business analyst, business development. It's kind of, right now we don't have business analysts, so it's sort of a new, it's really part of the product team right now. Yep, um, but it's just, we've, we've kind of adopted some of the business development side to come on and help us, to help us with that process because we've got some great people that can do it. So they'll spend two weeks just vetting the idea, talking to some potential customers, getting more context. They come back, they essentially pitch the idea to the, to the VPs if, we think it's a, if they think it's a good idea, a viable idea. And then we kick it off into like a prototyping phase where we get our marketing team really to just create vaporware that, that we can go pitch and try to sell. So if we sell it to three customers, then we get engineers involved, right? So you get, we have a great marketing and creative team that can create clickable demos that look like a real application. Like, let's go get this thing out there. We'll have a couple salespeople. And that's the same two people. Like, go sell this. If you sell it, we will, we will put engineers on it. We'll build a beta product, right? And so we've, and we've seen, it's been an awesome thing to watch. So we, there was one point, you know, we, talk, we were talking about putting ads in our product, right? So we have big screen TVs sitting in hospital waiting rooms, and we have a tablet where people can sign in to see the physician, and we do a whole, like, identity check on who that person is when they sign in. But we've got all this real estate, like, we've got screens sitting in the waiting rooms, and it's, like, it's targeted marketing. We know where you're sitting. We know who's sitting there. Like, it's a huge opportunity to make some money, right? And so we ran this process, and we said, yeah, there's, like, we talked to a bunch of hospitals. They will do this. They will pay X, X dollars for it. 
but we came back at the end and said, we're not doing it, right? Like, that's not really who we are as a company. I mean, there's money there. The money's not enough. That's not who we want to be. Let's just, let's not do it and, and move on. So I think that process, I think in the past, without some discipline around it, it's very easy to say, yeah, there's two customers want it. And then let's take five engineers and then let's take 10 and then let's go, let's just go. And if you're not deliberate about it and think about it, it so that must really piss those sales guys off that went out and, and got three customers to say, yes, I'd buy this if you built it. And then they come back and they come back to products. And yeah. you guys say, eh, we changed our mind. We're not, We're not that. that interested in it after all. And that's why we don't um, actually, they're not actually salespeople. So this is the same two people that are like from the business development side. So, so, so they So these it. people are just sadomasochistic. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and like and Google does this well as well. So Google, like the X lab, like they give, they give like incentives and and awards for people who kill products, right? Like there's a certain, the idea is like the people get invested in the product and the idea and they look at validating an idea and getting it out into the world as the definition of success, even if there's not a great business case for it or it's not where the, where the company wants to go. So, I, and it's a similar concept where you have to be willing to kill good ideas because there are, there are more good ideas than you have resources to pursue, Right. Probably better ideas, right? And, right. So good isn't, oh my God, this is going to sound terribly cliche, but good isn't good enough, right? Right. It's got to be spectacular, right? It's got to change a paradigm, right? Right. Yep. No, definitely. And I think you've seen companies that have succeeded at a huge scale have had to make these decisions. Like Facebook had opportunities to monetize all along the way and to get into ads earlier than it did and go all these crazy. And Zuckerberg you know, he's very, very committed to a vision that he wasn't going to dilute the product and they needed to go to one place and and those are the companies I think pull it off. But it's hard. It's hard to do when when you're running out of money, when you're burning money, and you're you're running on your venture back company. You know, making those decisions is really hard. So we've sort of weaved through methodologies and processes. Mm-hmm. So are you guys fundamentally agile? And so talk about some of the methodologies and, and approaches that you believe in and follow. Yeah. So we do. I mean, we do adhere to agile methodology. We use Jira to track sort of tickets and collaboration within the throughout the company. We're an agile development house. I mean, I think for us, we're at a position right now where... Are you true agile? How often are you releasing code? And, yeah, that's and a good question. How, how iteratively and quickly are you working? So one of the challenges we face as a healthcare company, so we are, right now, most of our hospitals are single tenant, right? So we, don't, we can't just release code and everybody's updated. It's like we got to update this hospital, this hospital, this hospital. It's the biggest pain ever. So like we can't release every, every day, right? We can't do continuous release cycles, which we are actually getting away from, right? So we're, we're actually going to a true multi-tenant architecture currently, and that's been our, a huge effort internally at the company. We're starting to look at certain customers, and that, that world is sort of dying even in healthcare, where even two years ago, people didn't trust Amazon Web Services hospitals, which is like, I'm not, we're, not, we're not doing that. We're not putting our data in the cloud. And I think it's becoming clear, and it's been interesting to watch, and we try to make this case to them, hey, like, your system is less secure than Amazon's system, I guarantee it, right? Like, and then you're starting to see all these hospitals get, get hacked, right? And so I, I think there's the, there is a sort of a shift there. So anyway, long story short, we're moving to a multi-tenant architecture where we will be able to do continuous deployments and be more truly agile, where we can just push out code updates in real time. Right now, it's more like, hey, we're two to four-week development cycles, right? Like, we will release code at the end of two or four weeks because you've got to then, it's a huge effort. You've got to have your engineers on site for several days as your DevOps team is doing deployments. And we've just fundamentally said, like, if we have to fire certain customers who are unwilling to kind of move into the modern era, then we may have to do that. Because the resources it takes to maintain those antiquated, sort of that antiquated infrastructure is just, it's not worth it on the business side. 
And I think initially as a company, we just had to do that uh, because the industry was not willing to accept that uh, a different ar architecture that would allow us to be more, more nimble and more agile. And I would say if you can be ag truly agile and continuously develop and release, you should be doing that. Like, <laughs> like this not, what we do right now is, is really a constraint of the industry that we're in, but we're all excited to get out of that. Most of my experience that say they're agile are some bastardized version of agile, right? Yeah. Most are not really, you know, releasing continuously, et cetera. Sometimes it's because of product, you know, issues. Sometimes it's, it's customer issues. Sometimes it's, it's their own ability to work that iteratively and that quickly. Cause it's, it's actually, it's actually really hard to do and really hard to pull off. Sure. Right. Because you've got every, you've got everybody thinking and performing essentially at a very high level all mm -hmm. the time. Right. Right. People have to be writing really good code consistently for it to work and make sense. Exactly, right? and we just we have frankly haven't been there. Like and that's kind of where we're moving as a company right now. So it's been it's been about like the last two months for us has been rewriting our entire architecture and infrastructure to enable that, which the engineers are obviously very excited about. We just kind of finished that initiative, so it'll be kind of rolling out to our existing customers and migrating them so that we can do that. Because really, if you can't do that, and you, when you get to a certain size, you you don't you can't win, right? You just the biggest like startups have few advantages, and one of their one of the biggest advantages that you have as a startup is your ability to execute quickly, right? Like you have to be able to execute very very quickly because that's big companies will beat you on resources every time on their sales teams are better. They're all but if you can't respond to the customer quickly and build a better product quickly, you'll lose as a startup. So nobody's raised their hand yet. So either nobody has a question or they're completely enthralled know, with our conversation and questions. So oh, we have a question. Awesome. So how do you um, hire and grow product owners so, like, and get them up to speed? Or are they already fully developed? Because at least from my understanding, product ownership just is relatively new. It's been around for a bit, but like really, yeah. So I guess that's the question. How do you really grow them or hire them or bring them in? Yeah, it's, it's still figuring that one out. It's tough. It really is. It's really hard to do. I think it's been incredible. Going back to people, it's incredible how hard it is to effectively onboard people like you think it'd be interesting or easy sorry but it's interesting like how difficult it really is to bring some, somebody up to speed and have them be effective in a reasonable period of time so we've had to put a lot of effort into that process of like okay what does the first week look like what does the second week look like what does the third week look like how are we training them on jira like how we run jira because jira is a product that is different at every company you go to like what it what are all of and documenting it right so they can sit down for the first several days if need be and just read through here's the product development process here's where all of our documentation is kept here's how it's formatted like all of that takes time and their eyes start bleeding and they want to quit yeah exactly and a lot of it just takes time for people to learn like i don't you can sit and tell me how to do something but i've got to go do it myself you know learn over time and that's really goes back to our trying to hire people who are learners who are able to learn quickly and are interested in learning and just getting up to speed quickly so it, i mean it becomes very important that you have a process for it I mean, I think technology companies that have scaled and done this well, and you, I mean, you can go study Facebook and Google and others. I mean, they have a boot camp for all new employees, and some of these companies, it's two months, right? Like, because, and I've seen this happen, when you throw a bunch of new employees onto a team, the new, the employee, your existing employees are just training the new, new employees. So, like, everything stops. Like, if you have a one-to-one -one new, new employee to existing employee, like, you slow down 50% plus on, on your timelines. So, doing that effectively is hard. Um, I don't have any, like, perfect answer to that question, but putting a process in place for it and tweaking that process is super important. 
wait till the Darren gets over there with the mic. So I'm going to ask a question while Darren's walking over. Does everybody get an equal voice on a product team? Yes. So, and how do you how do you overcome maybe disagreements or people seeing things differently that marketing and design may see something differently than than engineering and development does? How, how so when do you, you say on a okay, so on a pro, so the product owners are the ultimately responsible. So do they get to make a call? Yes. Do they, are they empowered to say, yeah. I hear you, I hear you, this is what makes the most sense in alignment with the business and adding value to the users, and so this is what's going to get done? Yes. Okay. And it's hard as a leader, you know, because ultimately I am responsible for the product succeeding and the CEO is responsible, you know, but it's sort of, you have to let people fail if they're going to fail as long as it's not going to kill the company. But like as you training leaders to lead kind of down the chain for you will get you further than trying to micromanage people. So I think as you have product owners, they're going to make poor decisions at some point in time and they're going to learn from them and then they're going to figure out how to prioritize effectively and how to talk to people and get the right inputs to make those decisions. Um, so that's been one of the biggest challenges for, for me, right? Because you know, you're the first product person, you kind of manage everything. Then you've got to step back and say, I don't agree with what they're doing, but I'm going to let them make that call. I think that's how you grow a team of leaders that then are able to make the right decisions over time. So the, yeah, the product owners are empowered to make the call. So if you know if the VP of engineering goes to the product owner and says, "What the hell are you doing? I think this is crazy," the product owner can say, "Thank you for your input. That's, we are doing this." Cool. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So at the beginning, you mentioned that uh, you were moving towards transparency, and I was wondering if there was any drawback or turnover with showing 120 people company finances and who owns equity, and did that cause any problems as you moved from you know non-transparent to transparent? Any problems? You know, it it solved a lot more problems than I can think that it created. You know, I think there was a there was an interesting moment where we took our all of our captains, our VP of engineering took our captains over to the sales team and and like brought up their dashboard on the big screen they have on the wall and had the VP of sales go through the numbers, right? Like, here's where we are, here's where we need to go. And here's why we need the product, the features that you guys are building. And like, if we don't hit these targets, here's the repercussions. And they all came back like sort of wide-eyed, like, whoa, like we, we have to deliver or we're in trouble, right? Like, then that's always true at a start. Like, you've got to deliver and there are real implications if you don't. And so I think it, it took... You know, you can tell people that, like, hey, guys, we got to deliver. This is our deadline. But if you don't say why is there that deadline and what is the context for that and give them that insight, they're not bought into the same level, right? And I think it, they, they took that back to their teams, and they became very clear to everybody, like, we have got to deliver, and here is why. Here's the financials behind it. Here's what customers are saying. And I think it's been interesting, again, to see Slack. Like, we have a stream of the whole, all the sales conversations. And then you have engineers chiming in, like, commenting on, the, on what customers are saying in the field. Well, why did you ask them this? Well, then they're asking product, well, hey, if this customer, I've seen five customers say this, why are we not doing this, right? So it creates a conversation where anybody in the company, literally anybody, can, can chime in on kind of the feed of data that's coming in. That's when an engineer chimes in and says something to the effect of, hey, dumbass, you were actually using it wrong. Yeah, right? exactly, right. And that's a, not and a bug. The, and, then the, and then the sales guy is like, oh, you're, I was supposed to click over <laughs> here and not down there? Oh, Okay. <laughs> So how do you deal with that? How do you how do you deal with training? There's actually, you know, inside of that joke, there's there's maybe an important point there. How do you train internal teams, i.e., sales, on the product so they can represent it effectively, show it effectively, et cetera? Man, this is, you're asking all the right questions. These are all things that like I'm I'm dealing with now or I've had to deal with because that you know I think right now actually we're dealing with with how do we do that effectively? Our sales team has grown. You get people that. You know, we've tried all these different methods of trying to communicate like how the product works. So it's videos, it's clickable demos, it's 
frequently asked questions like getting you everything you need. And it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to you know, get, especially when you have people that aren't in the office all the time, to figure out how to get them the materials they need and make sure that they understand the product really well. Because you do see those come across, I see those come across Slack, it's like, you don't understand the product. Like the fact that you said that to a customer means you don't understand how the product works like on a fundamental level, and that's a problem. So, If you really want to get product people pissed off, right, yes. is, is have somebody else in the business represent the product incorrectly yes. to customers, so, yeah, the, you're, you're about to have a fight. Yeah, and really that this, that's the product owner's responsibility, right? So like I took that, went to my product owner and said, like, they don't know how to use your product. So I walked him over to sales and said, you will sit with every sales representative for 20, 30, 40, 50, however long it takes, like, and they will understand how to use this product like, inside and out. And we'll, we're, we're talking about putting into place like a, some sort of, whether it's a test of some sort, whatever it is that somebody says, yes, like I certify you to sell this product. Until you come up to speed on it, like you do not get to go mm. talk to customers about Sales it. Salespeople love to be tested. They love to be tested. They like to make money. So like if you tell them you do not get to sell this product until I am confident you can, se- you can sell it, then they will learn it. Cool. It's hard. Thanks for being here, Joel. Yeah. Uh, my question for you is how do you encourage your product owners to think about balancing deadlines and timetables and all the things that you have to have with product quality as well as staying open to customer feedback and changing the course? Yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of that's, that, um, there's several questions in there that I think are interesting. I, when you, I, I think product initially with, for us, we took on almost too much responsibility at one point in time, where it was like everything that happens, you're responsible for. Like, and if, you know, if the, if the code goes out with bugs or if it's difficult to support technically, like that's the product owner's role. And I think one of the things that we did that was really effective was to really break down like what is product really responsible for? And engineering, like you are responsible for ensuring there's no bugs that go out, for ensuring that, like, there's uptimes 99.9%. All, all those things, like, that is an engineering problem, and you will be evaluated on that. So that engineering doesn't actually pass off code. It's not about pushing code. They, they are also evaluated on pushing quality code, right? So you got to make sure you're putting the right sort of incentives in place and putting responsibility where it needs to be to make sure you're hitting deadlines. Because what, what ends up happening, and again, all these things compound is you get get into a position where, yeah, I can push out code quickly, but it's going to be low quality. At some point, you've got to pay the piper on that. You've got to go back and you got to account for the technical debt. So, it, I mean, it's, it, again, it's, it's a challenge. You, know, you go back and forth on, on that. That's what product debates and discussions are about. It's like, what are the compromises we are willing to make in this product to get it out the door and have it be of sufficient quality? Because there's always bugs. There's always issues with products that you've got to accept. I think we've actually had the opposite problem in the past where we wanted, we waited to push out the perfect product and we watched what happened. Like there were several like features the customer didn't, didn't want, right? Like, so we overbuilt and then we spent six weeks building a product that we ended up killing, right? Because we didn't do enough of that, that sort of testing. So I, I'm a bigger believer in rolling things out, limited feature sets that you know do not scale. You know there may be bugs at a very, very small scale and figuring them out. But... There's several ways of thinking about kind of prioritization. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many of you guys read the Intercom blog, intercom.io. It's a great blog. I, I kind of love the, if you don't read it, you should if you're a product person. I love, I, they talk about rice, rice scoring of, of epics or user stories, which is, you know, the R stands for reach, I is impact, C is complexity, E is effort, right? So, and I, whether they have an actual score and they put numbers in, and I just think of it that way often, like, what is the reach? Meaning, how many users is this thing going to affect? Right. What is the impact? Like, how impactful is this feature that we're going to roll out for them? C is like you know the complexity. How complex? How confident? I think it's actually confidence. How confident are we in our ability to build this thing technically? 
and then what's the level, level of effort to do it? Because often it's funny, you might have two users of your, like 1% of your users that are very vocal about a feature. And like you get focused on that set of users. And then if you don't step back and say like, well, how many, how, how many customers is this going to reach if I prioritize this thing that I'm hearing a lot about? It's only 1% of my customers. So maybe it's not as important as this other thing that's going to impact everybody else, all my other 99, the 99% of my customers. So I think it's, it's, it's just interesting to me if you don't have some framework of thinking through how to prioritize how easy it is to kind of go, ast go astray. I mean, you go into JIRA and there's, I mean, there's a thousand tickets, literally, and you're trying to figure out, like, how do I, how do I that will turn you into an, That will turn you into an alcoholic. Yes, like that. quickly. That's, yeah, how do, you, how do you do that? And uh, yeah, so you've got to have a kind of a framework, whatever it is, for, for making those decisions. That's kind of how I think about it, yeah. You mentioned technical debt. Could you, because it's a term that I'm not sure a lot of people sort of are familiar with and understand. Could you, you know, do 30 seconds on what technical debt is in your mind? Yeah, I mean, tech, you know, there's this concept of, of minimal, minimum viable products or products that you kind of get out the door because they need to get out the door quickly. And you know in your mind, like, oh, this isn't perfect and we're going to fix it later, right? Like, we'll fix that later, we'll fix that later. If you say we'll fix that later long enough, at some point you've got to fix it, right? So, and we felt the pain on, on this one at, at Crosschecks. Like, if you wait too long to do that, you start to spend more time supporting the, the product. Like, your engineering team is literally spending most of their time just supporting the, the bad technical debt, the, the product that you've got, then building new product. And that's, if you get into that cycle, your product's sort of dying on the vine, right? Like, if your product isn't alive and, and growing and improving, it's dying. So, again, technical debt, I think it's about just having technical debt. Like, you've got this massive weight that you're carrying and it starts out small but it grows quickly and you've got to address it at some point how do you balance building versus running maintaining the products that are already in place and extending them and enhancing them versus new stuff that you're working on again that's kind of a there's a there's a couple ways like so in terms of making the, deci the decision of whether or not we're going to continue iterating or building something new or how how we appropriate resources to that? You, both, but both. I was thinking more appropriate resources. How do you, how do you put people on, you know, maintaining versus building? Yeah, I mean that's a great another you know I th great question. I think f it is very easy to go after the new shiny thing and like forget the product that is actually like driving revenue, right? So it's like oh we got to build the next new thing that people are going to love, and then if you ignore the your customers and the existing product, that's more tempting than, than you'd think. Because um, from a team perspective, if you, if you get put on the maintenance squad, yes. right, that seems like a demotion in comparison to the people that are working on the new shiny stuff. Yeah, definitely. And that, again, it's just a, that's a, that's a challenge. And you've got you've to, one of the things you've got to be really careful about, and again, this goes back to transparency on that, what you're just talking about in terms of sort of more on the morale side is making it very clear to everybody where they fit in the puzzle, right? Like, why is what I am doing critical to our success? So if they don't have that, I've seen this happen. If they don't have that, like, their productivity is very, very, very low. For us, again, we, have, we ran into this problem of not focusing on our existing products enough. And we had to just go to the engineers and say, you have 20% of your time to focus on resolving any issues that come up with the existing product and ensuring that technical debt is being addressed, right? So your story points, like, set aside 20%, and you are ultimately responsible for the product's, like, technical success. So product, like, technical debt is your problem. I'm giving you 20% of your time as a product. Like, product said 20% goes to the technical debt because we've gotten into it. Like, us trying, we will always push deadlines. Like, we're always going to say, we got to get this thing out. And engineering, like, we'll give you the time you need to, to address those things. It's, it's kind of how we've managed, managed that side. 
Yeah, so we actually do have a style guide that just, has just been built out, right? So as we've we built a team recently of engineers who now is kind of building out the components of the UI UX in conjunction with our designer to standardize that and make it much easier for the engineering team to build a consistent product. And I think the other challenge, it's actually somewhat easier with the engineering team to do that where it, it gets tough is across like all of your sales and marketing assets as you grow. Like there's your, your brand is everywhere and the look and feel gets everywhere and it, it's easy for it to kind of get misaligned. And I think what you can, if you don't define it, especially as you add engineers, it goes off the rails pretty quickly because you're asking an, like an engineer is kind of making, oh yeah, I got this mock-up I think this is the same font that looks good, but then this other engineer over here does it differently, and then it's, and it's close, but you, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it's not a cohesive, beautiful product. And I think, again, that was a focus as we kind of moved to this new architecture at CrossChecks that we just, we have to address that. We need a style guide. We need some process around this as there are more people working on it, right? As you're, when you're a smaller startup team, you got one guy doing that anyways, it's going to stay consistent. Um, now we have 35, it's, Different. Yeah, I've had people disagree with me on this, and, and clients in some cases, too, or people that didn't become clients, maybe because I said this, but creating anything is hard, mm-hmm. and I think it's an exercise in progress, not an exercise in perfection, right? Definitely. So as long as you're sort of moving forward and can, continuing to evolve the product and make it better mm-hmm. and add more value to users, and, and it's driving the business outcomes that you want, an expectation right, that... It, it's it's somehow going to be in this nice tidy box, right? Is is really a fallacy ultimately? Yeah, definitely. Your product is never perfect, and I think if again, like going back to kind of what I said earlier, if if your focus, if you focus on making sure, like looking at every pixel and making sure every pixel is is aligned and that that you know every feature works exactly as you anticipated it would, um, you'll never launch anything. You just never will. And I think it actually hurts you in the long run because you're not able to iterate and build quickly enough and, and respond to what, what customers want. But as you, again, as you grow, it becomes essential to have at least some guidelines. And I think a style guide can be a, you know, a book that's 1,000 pages, or it can be like you know, 20 pages. Like these, are, these are guidelines as, as you build, and I will build mock-ups with you as we go iteratively, rather than like here's like this huge textbook on how we, do, how we design and expect the engineers to even read it and understand it. Uh, it's because we've, we've done that too. Yeah, I mean, very. I, you know, there are they're asked to be on the phone with a customer at least once one customer a week and to be in front of a customer at least once a month and they're on the phone with customers all the time so if we're launching a new product they'll go on site and just see that launch at that hospital to just observe it really and see what kind of what the user and sort of experience is there and make sure they have context but it's really hard to do i especially when you're in the enterprise and we have locations all over the country, to get out and f- it's not like you can walk down to, the, to Starbucks and say, like, hey, check out my app. What do you think? Or you can just go, especially when you have a, in the enterprise, you have a target user type. So we have registrars that we're trying to, trying to reach. So you can't you know, go on Craigslist very easily and say, like, hey, I need some registrars to come over to CrossCheck's headquarters and test this out for me. That would be weird. That would be weird, right? You hear companies doing this. But uh, it's, it's hard. That's how we do it, though. We just got to get out of the building and do it. We've got time for a few more questions. Um, I'm just wondering, what's been the influence of uh, the healthcare interoperability policies on your development cycle? Can you give me a little bit more context on that one? Well, uh, you know, the roadmap was just recently released, and, you know, working in, I work in healthcare, and I know the challenges with interoperability. Sure. And I'm just wondering, do the policies that are out there, like meaningful use, shape the way that you guys strategize how you're going to develop, what the development cycle for a product would be? 
Or is that um, something that you just kind of work on a one-on-one basis with your clients like you're doing right now? I mean, it definitely does. You know, we, wanna, we have that sort of context. We, it's, we go back and forth on sort of the level of, well, there's two sides to this. One is like you're talking about meaningful use and some of the regulations for addressing meaningful use. Yes. Meaningful, meaningful use is great in that it reads almost like a product requirements document. Like it, these are things hospitals are going to have to be able to prove that they can do. So you can go down the list and say, well, let's create a solution to do that and to do this and to do this. And, and so we look at it to influence some of the decisions we're making, but again, not sort of our overall mission and vision. So we've actually, on the sort of integration side and the interoperability, we do not do HL7 interfaces at this point at all. Like we do not do them. So, and that goes against the grain entirely of what most healthcare startups do or companies do. And we did that deliberately, and so we're in 800 locations and other startups often crash on the the shores of trying to do interfaces that we've been able to grow so quickly. And over time, we want to build sort of a, a network that lives outside first, where you can, you can communicate across networks and hospitals about patients without having to go through that, that interface. Right, right. But the time, the, the, the time will come where we'll have to do it, but we've not done it. Final question. Oh, David. So I was also curious about how you handle overlap between products. Are they all discrete so product owners won't really interact or... And so yeah, when they overlap, how does that how is that handled? Yeah, we uh, you know we originally had some sort of smaller applications like apps that we were building out where it was very discreet, and then as we consolidated our, our product offering, we've had to take all those product owners and kind of put them around pieces of the application, which has actually been really powerful for us because it took our our product team from sort of being siloed in and of itself, like I'm working on this app and you're working on this app, to it being more collaborative. They're still working sort of on the same type of feature sets. But it's, it's more of a cohesive sort of product because they're able to interact more. But you, it's definitely important to draw the lines. Like if you don't draw the lines for people, it creates a lot of confusion and people become less effective because they don't know what they're actually responsible for. Yeah, that's how we, how we do that. Gang, please help me thank Joel for coming and talking to us today. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Product Camp Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more product insights and expertise. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Until next time, remember, great products matter.